0: Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. My name is Ben Wilcox, and I'd like to welcome you to our study or lesson prep for Alma chapters 5 through 7 this week. My goal is to help you teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And if you'd like the lesson plans or PowerPoint slides that I use in this lesson, please go to teachingwithpower.com, and you're going to find links to my channel, my blog, and my shop. So, I encourage you to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils, because it's time to dig deep. I'd like to begin this lesson talking a little bit about school. Now, I've always loved learning, but I haven't always liked school. And one of the things I liked least about school was taking tests. And the most feared of all tests is the final. At least that's what we call them here in the United States. And the final is exactly what it sounds like. It's the final test at the end of the year where you're tested on everything you've been taught that year. And it's usually worth the majority of your grade. You have a bad final, you'll have a bad grade. But there's a different kind of test that teachers give during the school year called a midterm. And so I like to ask my students, what is the purpose of a midterm? And my answer to that question would be to help us to be prepared for the final, to give you a sense of what the final might be like, and to ask some of the types of questions you're going to find on. Now, if you do poorly on a midterm, usually you can recover from that and still get a passing grade at the end. But if you do poorly on the final, well, you're out of luck. I remember taking a particularly difficult literature class at BYU, and I failed horribly on the midterm in that class. I just wasn't prepared, as I should have been, and the questions were deliberately tricky. You know, those gotcha questions teachers sometimes like to ask. I hate that. Anyway, I needed to do well in that class. So with that experience, I worked incredibly hard the rest of the semester. And now that I knew the kind of questions the professor was going to ask, I took notes differently. I paid attention differently. I knew what to prepare for and what to expect. Therefore, when the final came around, I was ready, and I aced it, even the tricky questions. My disastrous experience with the midterm led me to a victorious experience on the final. Where we're going to take a little midterm today, a spiritual midterm, that's the way I like to approach Alma chapter 5. Alma has a number of questions for us to consider, and so I call this the midterm of life. And a little background here. Alma's preaching a sermon to the people of Zarahemla, who have started to become prideful and to persecute the more humble and impoverished members of the church. So Alma decides to step down as chief judge and commit himself fully to the ministry, to help his people to course correct. And as we begin, sometimes it's good to determine the audience of any given sermon in the scriptures. For example, King Benjamin was addressing an overwhelmingly righteous audience. Abinadi, a very wicked audience. And Alma here is kind of dealing with an audience that's somewhere in between. An audience that I feel that most of us could relate to. For me, I see myself in that last group, and and I imagine that most of us probably could relate well here too. Alma wished to recommit his people to the gospel by giving them this self-examination, this spiritual midterm. And so that's how I want you to approach it. Let's say that Alma is speaking to you. And he walks over and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a choice here. Jesus is in the office just down the hall from here. And he's ready to give you your final judgment right now. You could go in right now and be judged. or..." You can delay it for six months, and I'll prep you with the questions that he's going to ask. And then you can have your final. Which of those two options are you going to choose? I think that most of us would probably choose to delay a little bit so that so that we can prepare ourselves a little better. Or, I don't know, maybe Alma would say to me, Actually, uh, maybe you ought to just go in now. If we give you another six months, you might mess things up even worse. Better get in there and just get it over with. But but I think most of us would probably want the extra time. We want the midterm, not the final. So let's take the midterm. And I have some good news for you. On this midterm, to pass, you only have to get one question right. How's that for a gracious teacher? But there's a catch. It has to be the right question. You can get all the other questions wrong. But if you get that one key question correct you'll do just fine. Well, the best way to teach this chapter is to find the question marks. That's how you're going to know what the midterm questions are. So, I encourage you to study this chapter looking for the question marks and marking every question that you find. Then, ask yourself those questions and take a moment of self-reflection to answer them. And for time's sake, I'm not going to cover every single one in this video. But we're going to do the majority of them, and I'll try to hit the major ones for sure. If I were teaching this, I'd invite my students to start scanning the chapter, looking for question marks. Then each time we identified one, we'd pause at those questions. I'd add some brief commentary to help them understand it a little better. And then we'd have a pondering moment for them to ask themselves those questions. So let's go ahead and take the spiritual midterm right here and now. Question number one, we're going to find it in verse six, and thematically, the idea of this question covers from verse six all the way to verse 13, and you're going to see a lot of question marks in that section, but they all drive at the same idea. The key phrase is, have ye sufficiently retained in remembrance? And what is it that Alma wants them to remember sufficiently? Let's see if you can figure it out. In verse 6, the captivity of their fathers, God's mercy and long-suffering towards them, how God delivered their souls from hell, how he changed their hearts, how they were loosed from the chains of hell, how they were saved, how the words of Abinadi changed Alma's father, and how he changed their father's hearts by teaching Abinadi's words to them. What do all these things have in common? They're all about looking back, about remembering both the triumphs and mistakes of their fathers and what God had done for them. And why would God want them and us to do that? Well, I think because it will give us confidence that God is going to do the same kinds of things for us, because it helps us to learn from their mistakes and spare ourselves reliving the same ones over and over again and because their stories inspire us and give us the strength to make the same kind of sacrifices. Remembering is an incredibly important idea in the Book of Mormon. In fact, the word remember or remembrance is found over a hundred times in the Book of Mormon. And what do we remember? The people in the Scriptures and what they learned. In early times, they didn't even call them Scriptures. They were called Book of Remembrance. We need to remember our church heritage, the early saints, the pioneers. All of us are beneficiaries of their sacrifices and we should remember them. And we should remember our own ancestors. No wonder there's such an emphasis on family history work in the church. And I'll give you a brief example of the power of remembering our ancestors. I think of my great, great grandfather, Anders Jensen. When he was a young man in Denmark, While walking home one day, he saw some boys bullying another boy, and that boy was carrying a load of laundry home, and and these other boys were taking it and throwing it out onto the street. Well, Anders put the bullying to an end, shooed the other boys away, and helped that boy gather his laundry, and then walked him home. And on the way home, he asked the boy why the others were picking on him, and the boy's answer, oh, it's because I'm a Mormon. A Mormon, Anders asked? And and with that, my great-great-grandfather first heard about the church. He was taught by the missionaries, his heart was touched, and he decided to be baptized. But before he was, he went home to tell his staunch Lutheran parents about his plans. They listened carefully and said, Anders, you're old enough to make your own decisions. But if you join this church, don't ever come home again. Now, uh, he had a, a big decision to make, his family or his faith. And for me, I am so grateful that he chose faith. Because I don't know if he realized it at that moment, but he wasn't only making that decision for him, but for his son, too. And his son's son. And his son. And his son, Who's me and I hope that I'll never forget that story and that my children will never forget that story. That story gives me spiritual strength it builds my faith. it helps me to keep my sacrifices in perspective. Can you see why it would be important for me to sufficiently retain in remembrance my fathers? So I ask you right now have you sufficiently retained in remembrance your forefathers and mothers? I promise, that remembrance is going to strengthen you. Question number two is in verse 14. Have ye spiritually been born of God? Remember our lesson back in the beginning of Mosiah, King Benjamin's sermon. In that talk, Benjamin spoke about becoming the children of Christ, about choosing Christ as our Father instead of the adversary. And then remember Isaiah's question that Abinadi quoted back in Mosiah 15, 10 through 12. Who shall declare his generation? Or who are going to be his children, his seed? And Abinadi tells us that they are those that hear, hearken, and believe the words of the prophets and look forward to a remission of their sins through Christ. Well, do you match this description? Do you value the words of our living prophets? Do you rely on Christ? Have you chosen him as your father? Question number three, and I'd like to introduce this with just a brief activity. Do you notice anything interesting about these celebrities and their children? And and do you see it? They look very, very similar, don't they? You can tell who their famous parents are. They reflect their image. Well, look at our next question in verse 14, and then that same idea is repeated in verse 19. Have you received his image in your countenances? And then in verse 19, can you look up having the image of God engraven upon your countenances? Well, that question naturally follows the last. If we've been born of God and Christ is now our Father, Is there a family resemblance in you? It's often easy to pair up parents with their children because they look similar. We say things like, you're the spitting image of your father, or you have your mother's eyes. There's something in our appearance or countenance that ties us to them. Well, can people see Christ in you? And we're not talking about actual physical appearance now, but spirit, character. You know, you can often read things in people's faces. You can see personality traits in them without them even saying a word. Sometimes you can see compassion in people's faces. But you can also see anger and hatred. What we have in our hearts often shows up in our faces. And what do you picture in Christ's face, in his image? Imagine he's sitting in front of you right now. What traits do you see there? Kindness. Love, tenderness, understanding, courage, expectation, resolve? Well, do you see those same values reflected in you? Does his image reflect in your countenance, in your character? Can people tell that you're his child by the way that you act and speak and dress and treat others? And how firmly should those traits be seated in your countenance? Verse 19 uses the word engraven. Now, I can write my name on something in pencil or pen or even magic marker, and it possibly may fade over time. But if I engrave my name on something, it becomes permanent. Question number four, also in verse 14. Have you experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Well, what's the mighty change of heart? We talked about that back in Mosiah 5. We decided that it was the attitude of, I want to be good. I may not always choose good, and sometimes my pesky natural man is going to get in the way, but my desire is there. I really want to be a good boy or a good girl. I want to do what's right. I want to please my heavenly parents. Do you have that attitude? Do you no longer have the disposition to do evil, but to do good continually? The mighty change is when we begin to follow our Father's will because we want to, not just because of the praise of others or because we feel obligated out of some sense of social pressure or routine. So have you experienced that mighty change? Question number five is in verse 15. Do you exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? How's your testimony doing? What's the state of your faith in him who created you? And later in Alma, he's going to compare faith and testimony to a tree. Well, what does your testimony tree currently look like? Is it green and growing and bearing fruit? Or is it dying? Does it it look more like a, a Charlie Brown Christmas tree? Are you nourishing it? Are you caring for it? When the frosts and the storms of doubt come, is it capable of weathering the storm? And the word that Alma uses here is to exercise faith. What a great word. We need to exercise our faith. Exercise requires effort. It requires persistence. It it means pushing ourselves in sometimes uncomfortable ways. But it makes you stronger, faster, and more capable the more that you do it. Well, it's the same thing with faith. It needs to be exercised. Is your faith fit or flabby? Maybe you need to get your faith to the gym. Question number six. Again here, I'm going to combine a lot of questions and ideas into one that I feel cover verse 15 all the way to 25. The theme here is visualizing the final judgment. How do you picture that day going? That's the question. If the first section of this test was about looking back, and the second was about looking in, this portion is all about looking forward. So, do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality and this corruption raised in incorruption to stand before God to be judged according to the deeds which have been done in the mortal body? And then, since this is a test, he's going to give you a multiple-choice question here. A, B, or C. Which of these scenarios do you envision? So, option A. I say unto you, can you imagine to yourselves that ye hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, Come unto me, ye blessed. For behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. Right now, looking at where you are at this moment, Is that what you picture him saying to you? Or you've got option B. Or do you imagine to yourselves that you can lie to the Lord in that day and say, Lord, our works have been righteous works upon the face of the earth and that he'll save you. You know, with your fingers crossed behind your back. Oh yeah, I was good. Uh, How do you think that's going to work? Or there's option C. Or otherwise, can you imagine yourselves brought before the tribunal of God with your souls filled with guilt and remorse, having a remembrance of all your guilt, yea, a perfect remembrance of all your wickedness, yea, a remembrance that you have set at defiance the commandments of God. Wow, well, for you, which scenario do you most likely see happening? And there, I think I hear Alma whispering to us, choose A, choose A. But, But we've got to live our lives in a certain way to be able to choose A or else we're really choosing B. And the next question is related, but we're going to give this one its own separate number. Question number seven is in verse 19. Can you look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? Elder Bednar gave a great talk on this a number of years ago in conference about the importance of having both. And he suggested that it was possible to have clean hands and not have a pure heart. It's not enough just to avoid being bad, clean hands, but we need to strive to do good, pure heart. He teaches that to have clean hands, we put off the natural man and overcome sin and evil, but that our hearts are purified when we receive the strengthening and enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and that we can't purify our hearts all by ourselves. We've got to rely on and seek the strength of the atonement To make our hearts pure. So, are you working on both? Are you exerting yourself to refrain from sin, but also seeking to improve yourself and to become more Christ like? And are you doing both of those things by relying on the power of the atonement? Well, I'm going to skip past the rest of the verses and questions in that section since the message is basically the same. And that's Can you imagine the judgment going well for you if your hands aren't clean and your hearts aren't pure? And the answer is no, it won't. Well, how are you doing so far? If you feel you aren't doing very well, just hang in there. Remember, you've only got to get one question right, so don't lose hope. Question number eight, it's in verse 26. And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if you have experienced a change of heart, and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? And here, is encouraging them to look back again. But not to their father's experiences this time. Their own previous spiritual experiences. Back to the times when they felt that mighty change of heart. That intense desire to do and to be good. Have you ever felt that? And if you have, good. Do you still feel it? If not, what happened? Let's rekindle that fire. Think back to those experiences, your answered prayers, your patriarchal blessing, experiences you had in gaining your testimony, in your childhood, what your parents taught you, what you learned on your mission if you served one. If you're a convert, what first drew you to the gospel? The very act of remembering those times will help to keep the flame burning. Why do you think we partake of the sacrament every week? To remember. Why do we pray and study the scriptures daily? Why do we attend church meetings every week? Why do we have general conference every six months? It's to remember, to keep our faith burning bright. He he talks about singing the song of redeeming love. Sometimes I think we get to the point where we're just singing one verse without any enthusiasm, barely moving our lips, like my seminary students sing sometimes. Or are you belting it out? All six verses, getting your lungs into it. If you've ever had those mighty change moments where you felt spiritually energized, do you feel so now? If not, what are you going to do about it? What do you need to remember? Question number nine. These are three related questions in verse 27. Have you walked, keeping yourselves blameless before God? Could you say, if you were called to die at this time within yourselves, that you've been sufficiently humble? That your garments have been cleansed and made white through the blood of Christ, who will come to redeem his people from their sins? So have you been humble enough to accept Christ's atonement for your sins? Humility is the key in this process. We have to have the humility to recognize that we need Christ to redeem us from our sins. Keeping ourselves blameless doesn't mean living without mistakes. That last question suggests that our garments are going to become dirty that they're going to need to be cleansed, and they can be. Christ's blood has that power. He will keep us blameless. Do you wash yourselves each week through the power of the sacrament? Are you humble enough to accept that sacrifice? Question number 10. For this question, I'm going to lump verses 28 through 30 together. There are three things that Alma wants his people to rid themselves of. This would be the clean hands part of the equation. We're not going to be found blameless if we have these trespasses still on our record. What are those three things? Pride, envy, and persecution. We know that these were the three specific things that Alma's people were struggling with at that time. So I think that you can approach this question in two ways. One, do you struggle with those specific things? Are you prideful? Do you perceive that you're better than others because you have more? Either physically, financially, intellectually, socially, or even spiritually? Or do you struggle on the other side of that equation? Do you perceive that you have less than others, and that fills you with envy for those that do? And do you resent those that have more? Is your heart filled with ingratitude because others have been blessed with something more than you? Do you persecute others? Or you could approach this question in a different way. If Alma were to name three specific things that you needed to work on most, what would they be? Maybe your problem isn't envy or persecution, but anger, or lust, selfishness, laziness, being critical. Think of three specific things that you need to work on, and then go to work stripping yourself of Now we're going to jump ahead because there's a large section here without many questions. Don't worry. We're going to come back to it in just a bit. But let's finish off the question part of the chapter. There's one final question to consider here, and Alma asks it four different times in verses 53 to 55. Can you find the repeated question phrase? Did you find it? It's Will you persist? If your actions are not in accordance with God's will, are you determined to continue down that broad path? Will you continue to distance yourself further and further from your Redeemer? Will you persist? So those are all the questions that we're going to consider. And how did you do? And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I sometimes don't feel I do very well. But did you figure out the only question that you have to get right? Which question do you think it would be? And it's got to be that last question, right? Will you persist? You can do poorly on all the others, but if you answer that one right, you have hope. And if your answer is no, I won't persist in those things in my life that that are out of order, that I can improve on, and, and I'll change If you can answer that honestly, well, then you pass the test. Remember the purpose of a midterm. It's about preparing you for the final. You can course correct here. You can change. You don't have to persist in that path. It's not too late. There's still time. Therefore, the message of the rest of the chapter, you can read in verses 31 to 62. And it all really drives at the same specific point. And I'll just summarize that for you here. It's repent, change. You don't have to persist. And maybe just a few verses of note here. Verses 33 through 34. Behold, he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them. And he saith, repent, and I'll receive you. Yea, he saith, come unto me, and ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, you shall eat and drink of the bread and the waters of life freely. And I love the openness of that. He's not a stern teacher that's grading on a curve or hoping to trick his students. He's inviting everybody to get an A in his class. Anybody that messed up on the midterm can start over and try again. There's hope. Come, pass this class and enjoy the graduation. It's going to be a celebration like no other. And then you've got this key message in verse 57. Perhaps we could add one final question to our test. Uh, Extra credit here. And now I say unto you, all you that are desirous to follow the voice of the Good Shepherd, come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate, and touch not their unclean things. So our final question, will you come out of the world Are you willing to be separate? Are you willing to stand up and stand out? The more wicked the world becomes, the more glaring the differences are going to be. The harder it's going to be to hide your candle under a bushel. Can you stand up to the scrutiny? Can you leave the unclean things of the world behind? I hope you can. And for who? The Good Shepherd. Because he's calling each one of us. He's saying, come, you're my child. You bear my image in your countenance. You, you look forward to the judgment with an eye of faith. You have clean hands and a pure heart. You sing my song of redeeming love. You walk blameless before me. You've stripped yourself of sin. Come, partake of the fruit of my tree and the water of my well. You don't need the world. Come out of it and walk with me. Well, now you know the questions on the final. Wouldn't you love a teacher that did that for you, that said, you know what, I'm going to give you all the questions that I'm going to ask you on the final, way before I even give it to you. I want you to pass. I'm on your side. So take these questions, prepare yourselves, change what you need to change, and become what you need to become. And you know what's great about this sermon? It worked. The midterm did change many of the people in Zarahemla. If you look at chapter 7, verse 4, it says that they had been established again in the way of his righteousness. Well, if you've strayed, if you've become too comfortable with the world around you, if you feel you had to answer a lot of those questions in a less than desirable way, I encourage you to do what you can to become established again in the way of righteousness. And if you ever feel like you're straying from that path, you can come and take this spiritual midterm again. Something Paul said comes to my mind here in 1 Corinthians 11.31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And what I think he means is that if I continually judge myself and take the midterm often and course correct throughout my life, then when it comes to the final judgment, Christ may not even have to judge me. He might say, You know, you've been judging yourself all throughout your life and been keeping yourself in check and improving. I don't even need to judge you. Enter into my kingdom, you blessed. I hope that's what we're all going to hear him say on the final that really matters most. I'm grateful for this chapter. It's helped me many times in my life to look inward and upward. Sometimes I feel I do well, and other times, I recognize my fault and and the areas that I need to change. And it makes a difference. It really does. And when I do, I always feel that arm of mercy extended towards me. That invitation to join him. And as we've gone through those questions, I hope you felt it too. Well, chapter 6 tells us how Alma sets things in order in Zarahemla, and then how he makes his way to his next destination the city of Gideon. Then chapter 7 gives us the sermon he teaches in Gideon. And you know what? It's completely different. They don't have the problems the people in Zarahemla had. And so he gives them a different message. And I really like that. It's not like he says, you know, I gave this great talk back in Zarahemla, and it went over really well. It's already prepared. So I'll just give you that same message. Now, prophets are going to teach according to where you're at and what you need. And since the Gideonites don't have the problems of the Zarahemlins, Alma is able to teach them greater and deeper things. Sometimes I hear people criticize conference by saying that we just hear the same things every time. Maybe if we all really applied those things, then the apostles could feel that they could go deeper and teach us more. Well, with the Gideonites, because of their righteousness, we get some of the most important and doctrinally significant verses on the atonement anywhere in the scriptures. And the fact of the matter is that I've already taught you my thoughts on those verses in a recent video. If you remember, at Easter, the Come Follow Me manual encouraged us to focus topically on what the Book of Mormon teaches us about the atonement. And in that video, I focused a large section of my thoughts on these particular verses in chapter seven. So rather than repeating myself, I'm gonna invite you to watch that portion of my Easter video and I'll provide you with a link here. The part on Alma 7 is found starting at timestamp 2348 and then ends at 3130. But I don't want to leave you completely empty-handed here in chapter 7, so one brief thought here and a way of introducing those verses if you were going to teach them. For an icebreaker, I'd ask some most important discussion questions. And invite them to discuss their opinions with the partner or with the class. So here they are. What's the most important meal of the day? What's the most important subject you can study in school? What's the most important habit you can develop? And then, what's the most important event in the history of mankind? Now, everybody will probably have different views on the answers to those questions. But now I invite you to see what Alma's answer is to that last question. What did he feel was the most important thing of all according to Alma 7, verse 7? And there he says that there is one thing of more importance than they all, that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. Now, I know that because of the hymn and because of the way we often bear testimony of the Savior, when we hear that, our thoughts immediately go to the resurrection. I know that my Redeemer lives. But that's not the context that Alma is referring to here. He's saying that the most important thing is that Jesus Christ lived a mortal life and came among his people. So it's not the I know that my Redeemer lives again, even after he was crucified, but the I know that my Redeemer lived a mortal life like me. That I know that my Redeemer lived is just as important as the I know that my Redeemer lives of now. It's vital for us to know that he shared mortality with us, that he knows what it's like to live life at our level. He lived and knows what we've experienced. Jesus Christ didn't come down to earth just to observe life and and what we go through, but to experience it and experience what we experience, literally. He felt everything that each of us feels and will feel. And that's the lead-in that I would use to then teach verses 11 through 13. Those verses show us that Christ experienced all pains, afflictions, temptations, Sicknesses, death, infirmities, sins, and transgressions of every kind. So that he would know, according to the flesh, not just by the revelation of the Spirit, but by real life experience, what it means to be mortal. And therefore, he understands. And he can succor us, or rescue us. And then, you know, I would teach the message that I gave you in my Easter video. That's probably how I'd approach teaching Alma chapter 7. But I'd love to conclude by echoing Alma's words that I too feel is of more importance than they all. That not only do I know that my Redeemer lives, but that He lived and came among His people. I'm grateful to worship a Savior that knows exactly what it's like to be me. And I know that he knows exactly what it's like to be you also. And with that thought, that's where we're going to end this week. I really hope you enjoyed the message, and I really appreciate you joining me this week for our Scripture Study Lesson plan. If you did enjoy it, I ask you to share it with somebody that you feel it could help. And if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd love it if you do that. Keep studying. Keep digging deep. Thanks for watching, and as always, Get out there and teach me.